All right, if you got your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 14 through 29. All right, this morning as we pick up in Mark chapter 6, last week we looked at Jesus sending out his disciples. Now next week we're going to look at the disciples coming back. But here stuck in the middle is, is a story that explains to us and shows us what happened to John the Baptist and how John the Baptist died. And it's kind of an odd story, kind of stuck in the middle, because at first it doesn't seem to fit. It's kind of like, why is this story here? But as we read this story, and as we look at the story, what we're going to see is, is the effect that sin has on our life, and the effect, the effect that sin has on our world. As we look at the story, we're going to see really three characters. We're going to see Herod, who is like a, a governor. He's called king at times, but he's almost like a, a governor over the region. Uh, we're going to see his wife, Herodias, uh, and we're going to see how sin affects their lives. And then we're going to see John the Baptist, and we're going to see how other people's sin uh, impacted his life. And so let's start off reading. Uh, we'll read Matthew, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, and then I'll pray, and then we'll work our way back through the passage. King Herod heard of it, that being Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his uh, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, when he, heard him he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give, up to half, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, For the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, and he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately he sent the king, or the, immediately the king sent an, an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he beheaded him in, pri in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. God, thankful for your word, thankful for truth. God, I pray that as we look at your word, God, that you would speak through your word, through your spirit, louder than my voice ever could. God, that you would reveal to us any sin that we are not confessing, that you would reveal to us our need for you. And God, you would reveal to us the great victory uh, that we have through Jesus Christ. So in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we really see in here there, that I want us to see is just the question that kind of starts off the passage. Not really a question, but, but what they're dealing with. 
And it's the, the question is, or what they're dealing is, what do you do with Jesus? The, the name of Jesus, what Jesus had been doing, the things that he had been teaching, his miracles, all this stuff had kind of spread throughout the region so that even Herod had begun to hear it. And as they began to hear it, people tried to, uh, ju- not justify, but they tried to explain how Jesus was doing the things that he was doing. He was raising people from the dead. He was casting out demons. He was healing people who were sick and who were uh, paralyzed. He was doing all this amazing, amazing stuff. And so they try to say, well, uh, he's a prophet who has come back, or maybe he's Elijah who has come back. Uh, remember, Elijah was called up in a, uh, in a chariot of fire, so maybe he's come back to earth. Uh, and they say, well, maybe it's John the Baptist. Maybe John the Baptist has risen again from the dead. And so uh, they're all looking at this question of who is Jesus? What, how is he doing the things that he has done? And so Herod... What we're going to see throughout this story has no desire to submit to Jesus. He has no desire to submit to truth. Probably because he's worried about what other people will think about him. He's worried about how other people will perceive him. But when it comes to this question, he doesn't say, well, there's got to be something great about Jesus. He says, well, this has to be John the Baptist who I had killed, who I had beheaded. That's who this is come back from the dead. And so they look at this idea of who Jesus is, and and they just don't get it right. And when we don't get right the question of who is Jesus, it impacts our life tremendously. Maybe one of the greatest questions that we will ever have to ask and answer is, who is Jesus and what do I do with him? Who is Jesus? What does he come to do? What does the Bible say about him? Am I going to trust this? I'm going to believe this. Then what do I do with that? Do I put my faith in him? Do I believe in him? Do I trust him? Or do I push him to the side because he's not what I want in this moment? In John chapter 6, Jesus lays out this teaching and he he lays out some pretty bold teaching of what it means to be his disciple. And, And several of the people who followed Jesus leave. They turn around and leave because the things that Jesus taught uh, were so uh, heavy. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus says, or it says this, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 67, so Jesus turned and said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's how we answer that question. That's how that question should be answered. Who is Jesus? When Jesus requires our life, when Jesus requires us to follow us, when we are introduced to Jesus through God's Word, through a church service, through a Sunday school class, through someone talking to us about Jesus, who is Jesus? He is the Holy One of God. He alone has the words of life. Where else can we go? The disciples had it right. The disciples were were, were right in recognizing that there there was something awesome about Jesus. He alone had the words of life. He was God in the flesh. He is God sitting in heaven right now on his throne waiting to come back. That's who Jesus is. So the question we have to ask ourselves next is what do we do with him? Do we trust him? Do we follow him? Do we just kind of keep this knowledge in the back of our head and just go on living how we want to live? Because how we answer that question and what we do with that question is the most important thing about us. 
Because if we believe Jesus Christ and we place our faith and trust in him, then that changes the trajectory of our life. No longer do we live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. No longer are we dead in our sins, but we are alive in Christ. No longer are we slaves to sin, but we've given, been given freedom and victory. No longer do guilt and shame define us, but we are defined by light and love, and we are the children, the sons and daughters of God. If we choose not to respond to that the way the disciples did, if we choose to respond the way Herod and so many other people did and say, you know what, Jesus is good, but he's not great, or Jesus does a lot of good things, but I'm not going to surrender my life to him, then the trajectory of our life continues towards sin, towards selfishness, and ultimately towards death. So as we ask ourselves, as we start off this, this morning, we've got to ask ourselves that question is what do we do with Jesus? Because we're about to look at Herod and his wife Herodias, and we're going to see that when we don't surrender to Jesus, when we don't respond to God, when we don't say Jesus is life and he's going to be the one that I follow, we're going to see the impact that sin has on our life. So as we look at Herod, here's what we're going to see. We're going to look at Herod's guilt. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, this story is, is told there, and it says this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why he is, uh, or that is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. As we see with Herod, as he looks at John the Baptist, he is convinced, or he looks at Jesus, he is convinced that this is John the Baptist. And I believe, and what we'll see, the way Scripture presents him and John's relationship is Herod is terrified because Herod is filled with guilt for having John killed. Now look back at, at, at our passage. Look in verse, uh, starting verse 16. It says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So the first thing that I want us to see is that Herod understood his sin. Herod understood what he had been doing and how it was wrong or how it was sinful. What Herod had done is Herod's brother Philip was still alive. Uh, Herod worked his magic as a leader and as, as someone with a lot of political power, had Herodias leave her brother and come and marry him. He lusted after her. He wanted her. He got her. And so John the Baptist very publicly and very repeatedly is proclaiming, Herod, this is wrong. This does not line up with God's standard. This does not line up with uh, how God would have you live. This does not line up with the, the biblical standard of marriage for you to go and take someone else's wife, marry them. This is wrong. Herod understood his sin. He understood what he did, at least from the perspective of the Israelites, from the perspective of uh, the God of Israel. He understood that his sin was wrong. But because Herodias, his new wife, was upset, he had John the Baptist arrested. Now, Herod also understood that there was something uh, special about John the Baptist. Look in verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. So we're going to look at that in a second. But Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead. But she could not. Why could she not? Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, 
and yet he heard him gladly. Herod protected John because Herod recognized that there was something great about John. He recognized him as a righteous and holy man. He recognized him as someone that had some kind of special power, something great backing him. There was something impressive and awesome and special about John the Baptist, and Herod knew it, and Herod, it made Herod nervous because he understood that the whether he would have called this or not, that the hand of God was on John. And he recognized that. He recognized the people who followed John. He recognized that he had a crowd following him. And so he did not want anything bad, at least by his hand, to happen to John the Baptist. And then what's neat is when you read it, what, what we just read, it said that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. It says when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet heard him gladly. This is what I think is going on in Herod's life. I think Herod, he recognizes that God's hand is at work in John the Baptist's life. He understands his sin. He understands that, that according to the God of Israel, that the things that he had been doing is, is wrong and that he needed to repent. Remember, John the Baptist came preaching repentance, telling people to, to repent of their sin and get ready for the kingdom of God was at hand. That's what John the Baptist came to do, to prepare the way for Jesus. So as he's been preaching this, this is what Herod's been hearing while, while he's Preaching to Herod, he's saying, look, here's what repentance looks like. You need to confess this sin of taking your brother's wife and marrying her. You need to confess. You need to repent. And it said that Herod was perplexed, yet heard him gladly. There was a part within Herod's life that understood and knew that John the Baptist was right. He was perplexed because there's a part of him that says, you know what? John is right. What I'm doing is wrong. I am guilty of this sin. Yet his new wife didn't want anything to do with John. His friends, were gonna, we see that, that once uh, everything happens with his stepdaughter who comes out and dances, and we'll look at that in a second, uh, the reason why he would not go back on his word or the reason why he had John the Baptist killed was because he didn't want the other leaders to look down on him. So he's worried about what other people thought. John the Baptist hears the truth. I believe that he understands and believes the truth, yet he still... He's the king. He shouldn't be called out by this guy. His wife doesn't want him to be called out by this guy. His wife is embarrassed. He doesn't want people to look down on him. And there's this internal struggle with, what do I do with this truth? What do I do with this call to repentance? Do I repent? Do I follow? Or do I just keep doing what I want to do and just flex my muscles at the king and have this guy put away? And there's this battle raging within him. That's why he is greatly perplexed, yet hears him gladly. His sin is being called out, but he knows there's truth to it. And so there's a part of him that is still drawn to that. Because God created us, and because Romans chapter 2 tells us that God has written his word on our heart, that we all have a, a basic conscience and a basic understanding of what is right and what is wrong, there is a part of us that is drawn towards truth. There's a part of us. Now, through our sin and through our life and through our turning from Jesus before we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that part might get smaller and smaller or hardened and hardened, but there's a part of us that still moves towards truth. That's what's going on in Herod's life. Ultimately, Herod does not respond to the truth, but he gives over to sin and he gives over to self. He gives over to flesh and he does not repent. He does not confess and he keeps living how he's living. And so when he hears about Jesus Christ, all he is left with is guilt and shame. Guilt over his sin. Guilt over having John the Baptist killed. Shame over what he had done. And all he's left is with, is with emptiness. 
That's what sin leaves us. If you're in this room and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all you have is guilt and shame. That's what sin leaves. Sin might be fun for a moment. Sin might be fun for a season. It might be pleasurable for a season. But what sin leads us, leaves us with is guilt. That's all it gives us is guilt. It makes us guilty before God. It makes us guilty before the righteous judge. And it's that guilt which sends us to hell for all of eternity because that's what sin leaves us. That's what we earn with our sin and for our sin. For those in the room who do know Jesus Christ, your guilt has been wiped away, your sin has been wiped away, but if we continue to live lives where we are not confessing our sin, where we are not repenting of our sin, where we are not battling our sin, then we can still put ourselves back under that guilt and that shame. It's already, Jesus has already paid the price. We don't have to, but if we're not confessing, if we're not repenting, if we're not fighting against our sin, then we can still feel that same guilt, that same shame from our sin. And the... The terrible thing about that is if we know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that when he died on the cross, he took all of our guilt. He took all of our shame. So if we are just humble enough to go to God and confess our sin, to repent of our sin, to tell him that we need his help, then we don't have to live with guilt. We don't have to live with shame. Jesus took all of that. So when we sin, we can honestly confess and repent of that and know that it's gone and know that God sees us perfect through his son Jesus. And we don't have to live with guilt and shame uh, corrupting our life and weighing us down if we trust in Jesus. But what's sad is that so many believers are still... This is where I need two hands. On one hand, they want to love God. They want to walk with God. On the other hand, they, they, they still want to give over to the desires of their flesh. They still want to feed that old man. And they're, they're trying to stand kind of with their legs split, trying to stand in two different worlds. And God does not allow that. The world does... Or, or, the way God has orchestrated creation, that is not allowed. God wants us to stand and walk with Him and follow Him and pursue Him and live a life of freedom and joy in Him. Yet when we try to stand and kind of straddle the line and try to live in both worlds, what we're ending up doing is just fully putting ourselves in the world of sin and selfishness and we're missing out on the freedom and the grace and the love that God offers. Now understand, if you're saved, that salvation cannot be lost. But what can happen is your fellowship with God can be damaged. That relationship can be damaged. It doesn't mean that you're divorced. It doesn't mean that that relationship is gone. But it does mean that, that it's damaged. And because God loves you, God will do whatever it has, He has to to draw you back to Himself. Now that's a great thing. That can also be a scary thing because the discipline, discipline is never fun. It's never good. That's why God gives us the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why God allows us to confess, to repent uh, on our own accord uh, so that we can live in fellowship with Him. So if you are... If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, my encouragement is if you want to get under the, out from underneath the shame and the guilt of your sin, turn to Jesus. If you're in this room and you are a believer but you still... Maybe it's been days, weeks, months since you've confessed sins, since you've went to God and laid out your faults and laid out your sins and laid out your struggles. So you're feeling the weight and you're feeling the guilt and you're feeling the shame. He's already paid the price. It's already been taken care of. You're already His child. Just go to Him in honesty and lay it before His feet so that we can all as believers live in the freedom that God offers. So we see that sin leaves us with guilt. Next, as we look at Herodias' life, 
we see how sin just drives us deeper and deeper into more and more sin. Now, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but from what I've read, this is a very Game of Thronesy type section when it comes to these relationships. So here's what's going on. Herod's having this dinner with uh, other uh, leaders of uh, Galilee, uh, military leaders, other high-ranking officials. Uh, these are all men. And so what Herodias does is Herodias concocts this plan where she takes her 13 to 15-year-old daughter, and it says that she goes out there and performs the dance. This is not a ballet. This is not a very innocent child's dance. This is a very R-rated, uh, seductive dance. John MacArthur says that this is um, comparable to a modern-day striptease. She goes out there with the intentions of uh, performing a very seductive, sensual dance to entice the, uh, the lust and the flesh of these older men. She sends her daughter out there so that she will please these men by how she dances with their eyes and with their minds so that hopefully Herod will say, hey, look, I'm going to give you something because you just made me feel really, really good. And so that's what happens. And Herod says, look, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she goes back to her mom and she says, what do I wish for? What do I ask for? And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. She concocts this whole plan, this whole really just wretched, sinful plan so that she can get what she wants. So let's kind of look at Herodias' life. First, we see that she did not just want John the Baptist punished. She wanted John the Baptist dead. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. All John the Baptist did was say, look, your marriage is wrong. Now, yes, very publicly, he called them out. He approached their sin. He told them what they did was sinful. He said what they did was wrong. But she wasn't just mad. She wasn't just angry. She didn't just want him kicked out of town. She didn't just want him arrested. She wanted him dead. Sin always wants more of our life. And sin will always go deeper and deeper. Next, she takes her daughter. She concocts this plan where she basically prostitutes her daughter to get what she wants. Any morality that she might have had, any, any uh, um, goodness that she might have had, any love for her daughter she might have had, she threw out the window so she, so she could get her vengeance, so she could get her revenge. We've got to understand when we are tempted with sin, when we fall into sin, that if we don't confess that, if we don't repent of that, sin always wants us to go deeper. Sin always wants us to pull, always wants to pull us farther and farther away from Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses, verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. The common uh, illustration is that there is a throne in the center of our heart. And someone's going to sit on that throne. It's going to be God, either God which leads us to righteousness, to, to obey, obeying Him, loving Him, following Him, or it's going to be self and it's going to be sin which leads to more and more sin, more and more unrighteousness, and ultimately to death and destruction. So the question is, who's sitting on the throne of your life? Because what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 is that someone is sitting on that throne and it cannot be shared by two different people. 
So the question is, who's ruling your life? Are we walking towards righteousness, towards obedience? That does not mean that we're perfect. We're all going to struggle. Uh, the Bible is clear that none of us is perfect, that we all have to confess, we all have to repent. We're all going to struggle. But is that the direction that we're going? Or is sin and self sitting on the throne and we're going in the direction of deeper and deeper into depravity, deeper and deeper into more and worse sin? Now, I want everyone to flip over to Romans chapter 1. And I want us to see how Paul kind of lays out this kind of stair step or this kind of spiral into more and more depravity or more and more sinfulness. We're going to start in verse 21. I'll give everyone a second just to get there. All right, Romans chapter 1, starting verse 21. We're going to read through verse 32. It says, for although they knew God, now what God has just said, or what Paul has just taught is that throughout creation, or through creation, God has revealed himself. God has revealed that, that for there to be a creation, there has to be a creator. And so verse 21 says, although they knew God, or they understood that there was a God, uh, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in this passage, Paul is laying out that, look, God has revealed himself through creation so that all mankind is without excuse. Everyone understands that there is a God, uh, whether they admit that or not, they understand there is a God. And what they have done is instead of worshiping God, they've rejected him and began to worship the things that God created, creating idols for themselves, creating other things that they have lifted up to the place of God. So they've rejected God and they begin worshiping other things. Verse 24. Therefore, now remember when we study the Bible, therefore is one of those words. It connects things. Therefore, because they basically, what he's saying is because they've rejected God, verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So that first step, because they did not acknowledge God, God gave them over to the impurities of their hearts, gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to dishonoring their bodies, that God said, fine, if you're going to reject me, then I'm just going to let you go deeper and deeper into sin. Your sin is going to get worse. Your sin is going to get more twisted. Your sin has become greater in your life. All right, so verse 26, for this reason, that's another thing, just like therefore, he's tying them together. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations uh, for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless uh, acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So step two, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for this reason. Because you've rejected God, because uh, you're not repenting even after God has allowed you to go deeper into your sin, to understand your need for a Savior, to understand your need for God, you've gone farther and deeper and deeper into sin so that you've given over to these dishonorable passions. So you're taking that which is natural and you're trading it in for something that is unnatural. And then the third step, they're given over to a debased mind, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree uh, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul lays out, as Paul is defining the sinfulness of mankind, as he's defining our need for a Savior, he kind of lays out this path of sin. He lays out that, that basically if we reject God, if we reject who Jesus is and what he has done for us, sin is not content to stay still in our life. Sin is not content just to take one little spot of our life. If we're Christians, sin does not want just that one little spot of, of what you look at or what you talk about or where your mind goes or the shows that you watch watch or what you look at on the computer, sin wants that to grow and grow and grow because sin wants to control our lives. And so what John or what Roman or what Paul is saying in the book of Romans is that sin drags us deeper and deeper and deeper into more and more and more sin. Sin is never content to stay where it's at. Sin wants to drag us deeper in the muck where it lives, where it resides, where it gets stronger, to drag us down and to drown us in the sin and the depravity that sin offers. We have to be careful. We have to be cautious. We have to fight against sin in our life because if we do not, sin will destroy us. Sin will pull us down. If you are lost, your sin is weighing you down under the judgment of God. Your sin is, is, is just bringing judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon you until you, return to, or until you repent and turn to Christ or ultimately judgment comes for you. If you're a Christian and you're just saying, you know what, this sin's not that bad. Uh, I can justify my sin. My sin's okay. My sin's not hurting anybody. That is a lie. That sin is hurting you. It's hurting other people, but that sin is hurting you. That sin wants to drag you down. That sin wants to pull you down and it's going to pull you farther and farther away from Christ, harden your heart and bury you in more and more sin because sin does not want a small part. Sin wants to rule our lives. As believers, we have to be aware of our sin. We have, I know I talk about this a lot, but it's just one of the basics of, of Christianity is we've got to go to God on a consistent daily basis and say, God, I'm not perfect. God, I sin. I mess up. Because the reality is God already knows it. God knows my sin probably greater than I do. God knows that I'm going to sin even before I sin. God knows me greater than I know myself. So if I go to God and say, God, I'm facing this temptation or God, I messed up here. He already knows and he still loves me and he still offers forgiveness. I'm not going to shock God by my sin. I'm not going to shock God by me falling short. God already knows he still had Jesus Christ die for me and he still offers me grace and repentance. But if I buy into the lie that I've got to impress God or that God's going to hate me if because of my sin and I try to handle my sin on myself and I try to, try to do it all on my own and I don't go to God in humility and dependence, then what that does is that ends up hurting me and that ends up greatly impacting my life and ultimately pulling me farther and farther away from God. We have to fight against sin in our life and when we fall short, we have to go to God and confess. Romans, or 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God understands. God still loves us. God offers grace. Now, finally, let's look at John the Baptist. Because in this story, he only gets mentioned once when, when he's talking about 
Well, twice. Once when he's proclaiming truth and once when he's getting his head chopped off. But John the Baptist is the only good person in this story. Even from a non-spiritual perspective, even if you're just looking at this from a worldly morality, John the Baptist is the only person who's not committing adultery. John the Baptist is the only person that is not so angry at someone that they want them dead. John the Baptist is the only person not prostituting their daughter to get what they want. John the Baptist is the only decent, good person in this passage. He is the only person in this passage that loves God. He is the only person in this passage that wants to follow God. And what happens to John the Baptist? John the Baptist dies. Now, I'm not trying to to end on a sour note, but one thing that I want us to understand that when we live in this world and we stand for truth and we try to walk with God and we try to follow God and, and our life is all about, we're making sure that we're trying to keep Jesus, that we're trying to keep God first. We store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We understand that this world is not our own, that this world is only temporary. And we also understand that in this world, we might face suffering. In this world, there might be persecution. In this world, we might be hated and despised because of our faith. In this world, we might be mocked because of our faith. In this world, we might not get anything good. But we have a hope, we have a home, we have a God that is greater, a future that is bigger than anything this world has to offer. As you read through this story, you see basically the bad guys win. Temporarily. Because what happens to John the Baptist is John the Baptist gets to go home. John the Baptist gets to go spend his eternity with God. And what Herod and Herodias are left with is guilt, shame, and judgment. It might look like things aren't fair. It might look like John got the short end of the stick. But John the Baptist, John the Baptist ultimately gets gets to go home. John the Baptist had grace. John the Baptist had forgiveness. It would be so great if I could stand up here and say, because you're a Christian, nothing bad will ever happen to you. But that's just not true. The Bible says in reality, one... The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Life happens to everybody. But also, the Bible says that because you're a Christian, because you're a child of God, that you have an enemy out there who wants to destroy you. You have an enemy out there who wants to do anything that he can to get you from following or to keep you from following after Jesus. The Bible tells us that all who desire to walk godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. In this world, we might have trials. In this world, we might have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Take heart, we have a home that is greater than what this world has to offer. Take heart because this is not the end for us. My encouragement for us through this passage is this. One, what are we doing with Jesus? Have we surrendered to Him or not? Are we walking with Him or not? What are we doing with the sin that exists in our lives? Are we fighting against it? Are we battling against it? Are we confessing and repenting it? Or are we just letting it have free reign? Because ultimately, there's no gray area in both of those. We either embrace Jesus or we don't. We either accept Jesus or we don't. We either fight against our sin or we just let it run run rampant. There's no gray area in both of those. 
And then as a final encouragement for us to remember that in this world, this world's not our home. This world's not the end for us. We have something far greater waiting for us. If that means persecution, if that means mocking, if that means losing friendships, whatever that means, Jesus is greater. John the Baptist recognized that. Herod did not. And we see the, the, the results of that in their lives. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. And thank you for this time that you've given us. God, I pray that as... Um, God, as we have looked at your word, Father God, I pray that you have spoken to hearts and to minds. God, I pray for everyone in this room. God, I pray for those who do not know you, God, that, that through this morning, God, through uh, your truth and your word, God, that they might come to know you, that they might come to understand their need for you. God, that as, as Herod understood but fought against it, God, they would understand, they would submit to it. God, I pray for those in this room who do know you, Lord, who we are all walking this path where we are fighting against sin and striving to obey you. God, I pray for strength. God, I pray that you would um, remind us that this world is not our end, that this world is not our home, that we are strangers and aliens. And God, that we would keep our focus set on what is eternal and what is great and what is perfect and what is loving. God, that we would confess our sin, we would repent of our sin, and that we would keep walking, that we would not be weighed down by the guilt and the shame that sin leaves. Uh, but God, we would, would, would trust so much more in you and your greatness. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.